we're uh, we're back in Philippians two, and and I'd like to get through a big chunk of three today as well. We'll let these crew come in, and then we'll get the door. But let me let me begin us with prayer. Um, I'm really glad to have my sister-in-law and her my niece here. Um, they're missionaries on the island of Yap. You know, my wife is number eight of nine kids. Um, you know, I was I was I'm an only child. This is a true story, actually. I'm an only child, and I um. I prayed. I was, I was just conscious of this as a little boy that I, I if I, if my kids were going to have aunts and uncles, then I would have to marry into a family that had siblings. <laughs> I figured how I knew how that worked. I'm telling the truth. I used to pray that God would give me a wife that would have you know lots of siblings. And I didn't really remember. And I, and I told my my mother-in-law. I said, I bet you're glad I stopped when I did. No, <laughs> um, like. Um, so we we got to see um, my, my you're not gonna believe this but my my in-laws have um, just had their 40th grandchild. Wow. So it's 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 something we you know we're you know we're, we take up a whole city block so it's quite <laughs> um, anyway but it's great to have Sherry and and Hannah here today. Um, all right so we're and it's and I got it because anyway she's not here now. All right so I'm um, into Philippians. And if you remember correctly, last week we did, and I'm going to skip around today, right? So I'm at that point where I'm just going to get to pick and choose. Um, but last week we did the second half of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And what we focused on there, and this is a very familiar text. It's one that we all know, know well. Um, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So that's the charge that Paul is bringing to think through the implications of of the of the person and work of Jesus as that imposes on us a model in which to follow. And the theme that we've been sort of wrestling with over the past couple of weeks is there there are there are dragons um, when we begin to think about this particular topic, and there are there are rocks to crash on. Um, when we begin to talk about what it means to imitate Jesus. Uh, what, what, what are some of the rocks here? Well, some of the rocks are, um, well, and we talk about, about this a lot around here, um, that in an attempt to imitate Jesus, we forget that the gospel hope that we have is found in the complete and finished work of what Jesus has done for us. Remember we talked about the uh, the rise of the um, WWJD movement about 20 years ago. I had a lot of bracelets. I was in youth work for a while. A lot of kids wore those you know WWJD bracelets, and those from a kind of different theological world would poke fun of that. You know, what would Jesus do? Kind of question because that was a question that put moral reflection in, in, a, in a position that was sort of higher than a reflection, first of all, all, on the objective character of our salvation. Namely, that Jesus has done something for you. You don't actualize that. That's something that's revealed to you by the power of the Spirit. When we are regenerated, when we are made alive, we're made alive to the reality of what Jesus has already done for us. Now, we heard a little bit about that this morning on, on the road to Emmaus. Their eyes were opened in the breaking of the bread and in the teaching of the Word. Why? Because now they've come to realize what it is that Jesus has done for them in His person and His work. So we, we emphasize that. I emphasize that kind of language in my own home. We do that around this here at, at our church. The objective character of what Jesus has done for you. When you stand at the gates and Peter meets you. I've told you this story before, right? 
When we moved to Birmingham 12 years ago, um, we were, some of you will know this kind of world, um, we were evangelistically exploded. Do any of you know, have any of you been tra- trained in, the, in, in evangelism explosion? Um, Presbyterian? Oh, yeah, of course, Miss Libby. Yes. Um, <laughs> Um, so I, f- I forgot. You're, um, well, we, we we visited a really a really large Presbyterian church in town, and and I just God bless me. This is a massive church. We went one time, and we had people that showed up on our doorstep to make sure that my wife and I were Christians. Um, and I was just I'm I'm just that's wonderful, right? So they they come into our house and and they they ask us what we're doing and I said well we've just moved here from where we were and now we're I'm going to teach the Bible for a living and uh, you know we 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 take um we take Jesus really really seriously and we love him and and we're and uh, and and I we said all that but you could tell that these gentlemen that that didn't matter we there's a question you know they got to move towards something and the question have you had this question asked you before if you were to stand before God today and he were to ask you, this is a good question, by the way, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? Well, at that point in time, I, I had gotten, I think, you know, my, my sanctification level had lowered. Um, and my wife, she was giving me the eye from the couch. I could tell she's like, calm down. Um, but I, 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 I said, uh, and maybe not in the best. So I said, I would say Jesus. You know, if they said, why should I you? My answer would be Jesus. And that's all I would say. And then the door would open for me. And, uh, and I was a little snarky that day, but that's, there's something very true, isn't there, about that? I mean, when, I, when we get to heaven, there's no, there's no self-congratulation. There's no, um, uh, aren't you so proud of th- what I did for you? I mean, even, the, and we're going to see this before we're done today in Philippians 2, even the good works that we do that are pleasing to Him are good works that are only done because of the good work that He's begun in us. There's, there's just there's no room with the Apostle Paul for any kind of boasting. There's no room for self-congratulation. The, the, the room is to step back from beginning to end in the whole Christian dynamic and say, look at the wonderful things that Jesus has done for us. And that's all we have to boast about. Now, so this is what, what Paul is saying here. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what kind of mind did Jesus demonstrate for us? Well, it's about as big as it gets when you begin to talk about humility. And what, what is it? Well, Jesus is the very form and being of God. Now, we didn't do the Nicene Creed today. We'll do that next week when we do communion. But you all know the Nicene Creed around here. What, what do we say? Of one being with the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, um, begotten, not made. I mean, we say that stuff all the time around here, but that that is a formal and robust commitment to the full divinity of Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, Jesus of Nazareth is fully God, 100% God. Whatever verbs you use to talk about the noun God can be predicated and must be predicated on Jesus of Nazareth as well. He's fully God. So this is the kind of logic we talked about last week, and it's hard to get our minds around. And whenever you start thinking about the Trinity too much, I think your ear, your your brain begins to kind of ooze out of your ear. Um, But this is the logic of the Trinity as it pertains to Jesus of Nazareth. There was never a time when the second person of the Trinity was not 
There's never been any time in God's eternal self-identity where the Logos, the Word, was not. There's never been that time. Um, We said it this morning in church. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, as now and will be forever, world without end. Amen. That's a 4th century fight song. That's a Trinitarian debate. That's think trumpets, trombones, cymbals, and bass drums, you know, with the, uh, the college football band as Athanasius goes against Arius who believed there was a time when the second person of the Trinity was not. We confess that Jesus of Nazareth as the second person of the Trinity was always God, but not always what? Man. And that's the tricky part. And by the way, that particular theological dynamic has exercised the mind and the heart of the life of the church from its beginning to today. That, you want to talk about what's at the heart of wrestling about God and theology? That's it. How is the second person in the Trinity always God and yet becomes something that he was not? That's a big, hard question. But he becomes that. He becomes a man. Think John 1.14. And the Word became flesh. Now, Philippians chapter 2, even though he was in the form of God, even though he was the exact representation of God, even though he's completely and fully God, not a diminutive form, but fully and completely God, what did he do? He emptied himself. He didn't, he didn't hold on or grasp after the authority of that particular divine location that he enjoyed as something that he had to hold on to, but he released it. And the question is, how did he release it? By becoming less God? No. And by the way, this is something especially 150 years ago in our tradition, in the Anglican world, this was massively debated and some really not very good people sort of came out and talked about, you know, the fact that Jesus actually kind of took him to a diminished divine form. No, he didn't in any way relinquish one iota of his divinity. What was his emptying? His emptying was becoming like you and me. That's the self-emptying of our, of our, of our Savior. He took on a form of humanity. And, and when he took humanity's form, he modeled that humility, um, that uh, self-determination to be a God that gives himself to others. And in doing so, what does he do? He takes on the, uh, the form of man and goes to the point of death. And not just any death, the most humiliating kind of death in the first century world, namely uh, the death on the cross. That's how he demonstrates humility for you and for me. Um, some of you will recall that we've ta- again we've talked about this in here, but and, and and I'm sure if you're like me, whenever you hear someone say um, sin can be identified as this or that can be identified as that, you go, well, I'm sure it's a much more complex phenomenon than this little definition that we've just given. But I do think it's fair enough to say that sin. At its basic form, if we let the garden be the way in which we think about what sin is, sin is human pride. It's uh, self-affirmation. Um, it's making our neighbors our own selves. That's, but that's what sin is. We, when we turn it in ourselves, we affirm ourselves. Uh, John Calvin said that we have a lawyer that lives inside of us, always ready to defend us. Right. And we have, we have idols in our hearts that we are constantly making. We affirm ourselves and we are happy with ourselves. Right. And how does God neutralize and obliterate the sin of man as pride? He does so 
by demonstrating ultimate cosmic divine humility. Our pride is obliterated in the face of the humility of our God to take the form of a man. And not just the form of a man, but a man that's broken and enjoys all of the difficulties of what it means for you to be human. I mean, think, think about what, and again, this is a hard thing to process, but think about what the author to the Hebrews says about Jesus. He learned obedience in the school of suffering. We're talking about God here in the flesh. Learning obedience in the school of human suffering. Now he knows what it's like to be you in your human flesh, in your frailty, and in your weakness. And that's why the the author to the Hebrews says, and he is like a high priest unlike any other. He can plead to the Father on your account with complete knowledge of what it means to be human. He is a fitting high priest because of that. That's the humility that he demonstrates for you and for me. And what did we see was the pattern last week. The pattern is from humiliation to exaltation. So he gives himself... He empties himself, and then, and here's the verse, we talked about it last week, and this is, this is where, um, I guess, the sort of tectonic plates begin to shift in the universe with this verse. Verse 9, you, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to read to you a verse out of Isaiah chapter 45 and tell me if it sounds familiar. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Now that's a very Isaiahic theme. I am God, there is no other God. Right? There's only um, Jehovah. There's only... Um, Adonai. There is no other God. Matter of fact, um, in the book of Isaiah, only Adonai or Jehovah, that's the term we use, only Jehovah is raised and exalted. Isaiah sees him sitting on a throne. Only Jehovah is raised and exalted. And whenever Israel tries to raise and exalt herself, Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 10, Here comes Yahweh as a great tree feller, and he cuts them down. Why? Because only Yahweh is exalted. Right? So here's that language. Turn to me, all the ends of the earth be saved. I'm God. There's not any other God. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. And then listen to this. To me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. You all have read the Apostle Paul long enough to know that the Apostle Paul has has a wonderful knowledge of the Bible, the Old Testament Scriptures. Right here, he's alluding to Isaiah 45 without telling us that he's doing that. Now, quite often, Paul will say, as as Isaiah says, da-da-da-da-da-da. As Moses said, da-da-da-da-da. But sometimes, Paul will just echo the Bible. You know, there's a, there's, you'll read something and you'll think, that sounds, that sounds strangely familiar. Jim Palmer, are you here this morning? Yeah. So like Jim Palmer, if I were to just drop a line in here and say, my mother is a fish, you would think, what? Faulkner. All right, William Faulkner, as I lay dying. He's an English teacher. That was a, that was a little, so, that was a softball. Um, 
Right? I mean, sometimes we just sort of drop these sort of these these lines um, and we build them into our language and we sort of move on. Um, Paul does that all the time. And if Paul is going to drop a line to pepper his thought and his writing, nine times out of ten, it's going to be the Bible. Paul's just sort of riddled with the Bible. And here he's doing it right here. He's not telling you that he's quoting Isaiah, but he is quoting Isaiah. And he's quoting Isaiah at a strategic point in that book. What's the strategic point? This is how God's salvation in Isaiah 45 goes throughout the whole world. All the world will turn to me and be saved and they will recognize me as God and that there is no other God beside me. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And look what Paul's doing here. He's he's talking about all of that in relationship to Jesus of Nazareth. Whatever you can talk about, the God of Isaiah is being spoken of here in relationship to Jesus of Nazareth. All right, so that's what we talked about last week, and, and specifically as it relates to the name. Let me just stop for a second and see. You you want to fire any questions out about that? Anything you want to ask? Um, we talked a, bit, a little bit last week as well about the significance of the name itself and that whole theology of the name. Um, uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about it just for three minutes and then we'll move on. But you, you do remember when uh, Jacob is wrestling with God at the river uh, Jabbok. And God has just changed Jacob's name from Jacob, heel grabber, to now what? Yisrael, striver with God. And then, and this is part of the story that's often forgotten, but what does Jacob then ask in return? Well, what is your name? Remember that? It's a, it's a, that's a bizarre narrative. I mean, it, it's it's weird. I mean, they start fighting... Um, there's that vampire kind of imagery, like let go of me, the sun's about to come up. It's a, it's a, it's a strange, it's a strange text. Um, and then Jacob says, "What is your name?" And uh, and wh- how does God answer Jacob? He doesn't. That's none of your business, Jacob. Let's move on. We have to wait till Exodus chapter three to have that question asked again. And now, who's asking that question in front of a burning bush? A bush that's burning but not being consumed. Moses. And what does Moses say? Well, God, they're going to ask me what is his name. What shall I tell them? And this is the point where God reveals and answers the question. So if you think about it from the standpoint of the Pentateuch, Genesis and Exodus, when Jacob asked that question, it's, it's as if God is saying that question can't be asked yet the way in which you want it to be asked. That's not your moment. Jacob, in the economy of redemption. It's not your moment. That moment has to await for Moses several chapters down the road when I'm about to reveal my name. Not that they didn't know his name. It's not, not that they didn't know the doctor here. Or who, it's not that they didn't know the name. What they didn't know was the fullness of the character and identity of that name. Um, why? Because now God is telling Moses at the burning bush, I'm going to let you know the fullness of my name as it relates to this moment, the paradigmatic moment of redemption in the Old Testament when I'm going to split that Red Sea open and bring you through on the other side and fight for you and win against Pharaoh and save my people. You're going to really know my name. That's why he says, I will be who I will be, or I am who I will be. You want to know who I am? You want to know my name? My name is linked to this moment of redemption. Jacob, that's not your moment. 
That's the moment to come later. And here we have Jesus in John chapter 17, right? The high priestly prayer. The night before he moves into his passion. And what's the last thing Jesus says in John 17? I have revealed your name to them, but I will yet reveal your name even more. Why? The paradigmatic revelation of the name in the Old Testament is the Exodus. The paradigmatic and full revelation of the name of God in the New Testament is the cross and the resurrection. God's name is linked to His redemptive movement toward His people. Do you want to know who I am? I'm the God that raised Egypt from the dead. I'm the God, Israel from the dead. I'm the God that raised Jesus from the dead. That's my identity. And here we see Paul telling them, right here in Philippi, that, that God is giving that particular name and the fullness of that name to Jesus of Nazareth. It's really, you, can, you cannot find, I don't think, a more profound statement about the divinity of Jesus than you find uh, right here. All right? Okay, how are we doing on time? Not great. So, <laughs> as we move on here, I, I, oh, oh, so here's some fun verses. Look at uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. You know, this is part of the theme of Paul's letter here. I really wish I was with you, but I'm not. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Well... This is tough, right? Because what is Paul telling them? Paul is calling them to reflection and repentance. Now, we talk about this a lot here, too, at our church. Now, we, if you haven't noticed, there's a bit of a man crush on Martin Luther around here. <laughs> um, and uh, you know what, what's Martin Luther's famous phrase about the doctrine of repentance? Well, repentance is not a one-time activity. Repentance is what? Constitutive of the life of a believer. I mean, we, li- we lead lives of repentance. We're always in moments of having to turn back again and again. And here is Paul calling on the Philippian believers to think critically and reflectively about their salvation and the implications of their salvation in their lives and their community. Work it out. Um, if I can use Genesis 32 again, wrestle with God at the Jabbok River. Strive with Him. Hold fast to Him. Think long and hard about what it means to be fully human in light of the good graces of God given to you in salvation. It's a call to critical reflection, and it's a call to reflection critically on their community and on themselves. There's no sort of, um, how, how do one describe this, neutral passivity in the sense of just sort of stand, standing, standing in a position of not continuing to reflect on the implications of the gospel for life and, and obedience. So that's the call here. Um, but then he goes on to say this, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So what's, what's Paul saying here? I, I don't know if this is helpful or not. I, I think a way of describing these two verses here, and you can flip it. 
He's calling us to lives of active passivity or passive activity. I mean, either way, I think they both will work. What's the passivity part? Again, it's a recognition that even the ability to think critically, even the ability to repent and turn again and again and again, is not something that we have within our human arsenal of gifts to deploy so that we can make ourselves be and do that. We, we, just, we don't have that. That's not in our resources to do that. Make me repent today. Um, make me turn again today. The actual gift of turning to Jesus again and again is something that's generated and operated by the work of another in us. We don't generate that. But when you are reflecting and repenting, and thinking critically about yourself and your faith and your family and your life and your place in the world and the list goes on and on. When we're doing that and involved in that, that is an indication, according to Paul, that God is operative and at work by His Spirit in your life and in your heart. That's that active passivity or that passive activity. And I have to tell I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're, you feel this way. It's hard to be self-critical. I mean, I see this. Um, you know, I see this in my my. Well, I want to say my kids. I see it in myself, right? But I see it. In my, you know, I see it really in my kids, right? Um, I've got a son. Um, I won't say his name, but he, uh, he's but he's my oldest. Um, <laughs> and uh, he pitches for his baseball team. He loves. He loves it. He just loves it. He's the kind of kid that you know he might get rocked one day and. He's really angry in the moment. The next day, he's like ready to do it again. He just he, he loves it. And I've encouraged William. I'm like, William, listen. You know, be a leader on your team. Um, you know, uh, set, set a standard of, of encouragement to your guys and that kind of thing. And I was, in a, I was at a game a week ago, and his catcher was having a hard time sort of get, getting the ball and blocking some balls down. And I saw him come off the mound, and he was... He said something like, you're going to have to get those. Or, you're going to have to get the glove and you're going to have to block. I mean, really sort of laid into him. And I, I looked at my wife and I said, if I was that catcher, I think I'd punch William right in the nose. <laughs> um, so I pulled him aside afterward and, and I said, I said William, do, do, you, do you think that's the kind of encouragement we're talking about? Like, is that? Because <laughs> like, my sense is he's thinking, I'm trying to help him. I'm not, and I was like, William, that's not helping. Right? He knows that. But I look at that, so it's like a bit of an icon of our, of my existence. I think your existence too is, right? I mean, it's very hard to be self-critical and to be open to that kind of critical reflection of the self. But what does the Word of God do? Hebrews chapter 4. It enters into all the crevices of our lives like a big spotlight and reveals who we are, our deep need, and the good news of the gospel that there's an answer to all of those needs in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is Paul calling us right here to that kind of passive, active existence. All right. Well, how are we doing on time? 1040. Well, let's keep moving. All right, let's keep moving. I want to go to Philippians chapter... I'm just going to jump. Is that okay with you all? All the way to Philippians chapter 3. Well, Paul's about to land the plane, okay? Hear how he begins chapter 3. Finally, my brothers. Now, this is a great preaching move. This is four chapters of a letter. He says, finally, 
halfway through, right? Um, I, I, I'll often, you know, I, I mentioned William, I'll say it again. One of the first times that William, uh, my oldest son, heard me preach was at a you know, Christian camp several years ago in Mississippi. And he'd never heard me before. You know, he's always off in kids' things or whatever. And, and um, afterward, I said, uh, so give me some critical feedback, William. What do you think? And he said, well, it's, you know, never ask your children that, by the way. <laughs> but uh, he said, um, well, Daddy, two things. Number one, it seemed like you just kept saying the same thing over and over again. Um, and it just didn't seem to stop. Uh, <laughs> it was like it just kept going on. I was like, well, th- thank you. That was very, very helpful. Um, you know, I tell... I tell my students at Beeson, I said, listen, Calvin was right on this. I mean, one of the great character traits of good preaching, teaching, and writing is lucidity and brevity. Um, you know, many, many, uh, you know, 45-minute sermons that I've heard would, been, would be a lot better at 25. I mean, it's hard to do. Remember that, that famous line from Mark Twain, I, I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of get, well, here's Paul. Paul's, Paul, he's blowing it too, right? Finally, this is my final thought, two chapters before. What does he say? Rejoice in the Lord. Paul can't help but talk in that way, by the way. Rejoice in the Lord. We would all do well to remember where Paul is writing this. You remember where he's writing this from? He's in prison. Rejoice in the Lord. Uh, To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me. It's safe for you. It's good news for you. And now he's going to become a protective father. Look out for the dogs. I do like this, by the way, about the early church and the church fathers and the, and the apostles. When it came to false teaching in the life of the church, they didn't really, they weren't southern and delicate. There's no, there's no pineapples out in the front porch, you know, of Paul's anti-heretical writings. Um, they're dogs, right? Uh, they're evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. We put no confidence in the flesh. Well, what, what's Paul going after here? He doesn't get very specific, but we, we, we can put it together. It's very common within this particular period of Paul's apostolic work for those Jews who had been converted to Christ to demand of Gentiles who were converted to Christ that as part of their entry fee... To be a Christian was also then to take on the practices of the Jews. Paul got very testy about that. Matter of fact, so testy that in Galatians chapter 2, he told Peter, we're talking about the Apostle Peter on whom Christ would build his church, he told Peter to pipe it down because he's offending the gospel. Because he's not speaking against these Jews who are requiring Gentiles to do Jesus plus something. So Jesus and this. So yes, Jesus did die for your sins, but you better get circumcised as well. And you better follow Torah according to these specifications, yada, yada, yada. And here Paul is saying, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh, right? Dogs, that's, that's what they are. But then he goes on, and this is, this is where I think Paul, Paul's getting a little snarky here. And rightly so. He says, listen, if we need a resume that's built on confidence, built in the flesh, based upon Jewish legal codes. Well, no one's going to outdo my resume. No one. You want to see my CV? I'll show you my CV. It's super impressive. Here we go. Um, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. And not just the people of Israel, that special tribe right there north of of, uh, Judah, a little area right north of Judah, the Benjamites. 
Benjaminites who understood themselves to be a special tribe within the 12 tribes. I mean, he traced his lineage. I mean, how should we say this? He's like, I, you know, I went to Harvard, right? Um, I'm, I'm an, I'm an Ivy League graduate here. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. I'm not one of those Sadducees that have kind of compromised the truth of the Old Testament. I'm, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to the righteousness under the law, no one could lay a charge against me. But here he goes on. But whatever gain I had, I counted all of it as loss. Um, refuse. A, 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 a manure pile. Why? For the sake of Jesus Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So think about this. I was the elite of those people who are requiring you to become Jews in order to secure your salvation. If, if, if that's the case, I was the elite among them. And all of that stuff that they're asking you to do, I'm, I'm willing and happily willing to set all of it aside because of the surpassing knowledge that has been given to me in Jesus Christ my Lord. He, he's, he's better. This is where Paul is talking about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. He's better than it all. All of the attempts that I, at my religiosity, all of the attempts at cleaning myself up externally and living according to Torah, all of that, it's nothing. It pales in comparison to the fullness of revelation that I have in Jesus Christ. I count all of that as just nothing. It's silliness. It's, it's to, to, to a quote C.S. Lewis, it's playing in a mud pile when I've been offered a holiday at the sea. It's just a mud pile. It's nothing. What does he say? He goes on. For this sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I've lost my reputation. I've lost my ability to move at will. I'm suffering for the gospel. And I count all of that stuff as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him. And here is Paul 101. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Not by attending to external forms of religiosity. Not by yielding myself to Torah and Torah's claims. No. But by from that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness from God that depends solely on faith. Isn't it something about faith? I don't know how you conceive of faith. But the way I talk about it with my students is, you know, faith is never, especially when Jesus is talking about it, it's never measured by its quality or even its quantity. Jesus always liked to use small things like mustard seeds to talk about faith because faith, faith's beauty and faith's saving efficacy is solely because of faith's object, not the quality of the faith itself. I mean, isn't it something that the only human work that's in accord with the gospel is a work that by the very nature of what it is, is a, a leaving of the self and looking to something else. Faith looks beyond itself to what has been done for us and someone else. I mean, here's Paul saying, all that Torah stuff, Jesus did all of that for me. And I look to Him. My faith looks outward uh, to Him. 
And here's a verse that, at least since my childhood, has been very special to me. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I mean, isn't that an incredible thing to think about the Apostle Paul here at the apex of his apostolic career, if we can use that language? Someone who, and think, put this in context, someone who tells us, I have no idea what he's talking about, but he went somewhere, third, third I don't know, tells us in, what, in second, I, I went to the third heaven and I can't even talk about it. It's like uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. You know this is true, right, about Aquinas. I have his big Summa Theological on my shelf. Years of writing. He was literally about six months worth of writing away from finishing the Summa. One of the greatest theological achievements in the history of the church. And what happens to Aquinas? All the biographers talk about this. He has some kind of experience in his monastic community. He sees something. He has some kind of Pauline third heaven experience. Aquinas didn't talk about it very much. But he said, I saw something and I will never write again. He said, that my, all my words, everything, we're talking about one of the greatest theologians in the history of the Western church. He said, all my words, nothing compared to that. Think about Dante moving up in the Paradiso. Gets further and further. And all of a sudden it's like words don't quite matter anymore and music can't even be described. It's just so other when you get closer and closer to the to the to the being of God, it's it's music that's beyond our words. And here, here Paul is saying, having experienced all of that, and what is he still saying? I want to know more. Jesus, the thing, Jesus as a never-ending well. And I don't know. I'll stop with this. But I don't know what your view is of heaven. Um, I don't think we become little deities in the sense that we become omniscient. I don't think we're all-knowing in heaven. I think we're absent sin and the horrors and corruption that sin has brought in our relationship with God and one another. I think all that's absent and I can't wait. It's going to be wonderful. Um, but I don't think we, we are um, omniscient. I don't think we, oh, we know everything. We, we will be learning more about the depths of our God and Jesus and what He's done for us and His love for us 10,000 years from now. That's what Paul's saying. He's a never-ending well of joy and goodness. That I may, that I may know him. So, well, if this is the last Sunday that we have in Philippians, I don't think it is. That's a good place to end. Um, if it's not, then we'll press on to it more next week. Lord, bless my friends as they go from this place. And Lord, let your word plant itself in our hearts that you would revive and renew our hearts to, and our minds to love you and to yearn to know you as the waters cover the sea. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.